Hey friends, Future Jake here. I wanted to start off this episode with a word of thanks to you, the listener. Because just last week we reached a fun and amazing milestone. Woodland War Machine exceeded 100,000 downloads. When Sam, Kyle, and I started this whole romp in the Woodland, we never anticipated the level of support or enthusiasm coming from the Root community, and we're so thankful for you. We love making this content, and we appreciate you being here to listen. Thanks to all the folks who participate in our channel on the Good Time Society Discord. Thank you to our supporters on Patreon, and thank you to everyone who listens. All right, on to the show. My snap was a little quiet, but you can, you know, you can fix it in post. Yeah. It's always just a disaster with your snaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And for a musical theater person, I'm kind of surprised because you're well versed in snapping. Yeah, well, I never did West Side Story, so uh, you were gone really that day in musical theater it. school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, you went to a conservatory. Yeah, but it wasn't musical theater. It was only, only boring theater. Yeah, only boring theater. <laughs> yeah. what, was, <laughs> what was the most boring play you did? Oh, what is that one called? Um, it's like a John Paul Sartre thing where there's three people and they're in hell. You're thinking no exit, right? No exit. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. The tagline is like hell is other people. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that to me, that's pretty antithetical to my whole thing. So I <laughs> hell is this production. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> are you are you two theater kids, Garrick and Lily? I am. He's not. I'm not. Mm. <laughs> I like the cinema. <laughs> yes. Yes. said like a true film buff yeah. <laughs> listener you can't see it but he also did a wave of his fingers too it was wonderful. i don't know what it was gesturing but i did something the cinema yeah. <laughs> lily what's your favorite musical oh god um i don't know i probably will have to say wicked just because i've seen it like seven times at this point in my life we, uh, Kyle and I are part of a theater company, and there was a big text thread today about how Wicked's going to be broken into two different movies. Oh, like, boy. They're going to do, yeah. like, the Hobbit style or, like, oh, the Hunger geez. Games thing, and it's just like, you don't need to do that. <laughs> you really don't need to do that. <laughs> I feel that. like usually they wait until it's, like, a couple of sequels in before they start milking it that hard, but this one's <laughs> yeah. just, like, straight off the bat. They're, like, two movies. Yeah. Let's go. Franchise yeah, the yeah, franchise. Yeah, they're franchising the franchise. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, there's already one. It's The Wizard of Oz, and then almost a hundred years later, Wicked comes out. Yeah, perfect. Part one. <laughs> Part one. Return of Gilda. What's her name? Yeah, Gilda. one of them. One of them is called Gilda's Gilda. Revenge. Wait, Glinda. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Gilda yeah. Ratner was an SNL member. So yeah. <laughs> but really, <laughs> sweet. Wow, that segue. Like a seed dropped by a skybird. <laughs> <laughs> is skybird okay. a reference to Wicked? It is, yes. yeah. It's famously one of the like clunkiest lyrics in the show because it, it fits syllabically, but the like no one calls it a skybird, it's just a bird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well it's not a land bird, it's no chicken dropping seeds. Yeah, no, no ostriches, no mm. penguins. <laughs> right. Flightless birds are not allowed. <laughs> Skybirds. <laughs> 
<laughs> it just feels so like fey and weird and I love it. <laughs> it feels like what the eerie would call themselves and everybody's like, no, you're just birds. Like, you're not <laughs> I come from a long line of sky birds. We are the sky birds. <laughs> that is a good like last name for like an eerie character in the root RPG, <laughs> Skybird. Clark Skybird. I'm Derek Clawby. <laughs> I had a coworker that listened to the Root RPG episode we did, and they really complimented your names of cats, Kyle. <laughs> okay, yeah, nice. amazing. Yeah, it was like they're either vaguely French or <laughs> they're just like overly like cute cats. Yeah. <laughs> Round two, if we ever end up going to uh, Keepton, which is the uh, the town where the keep is. Mm-hmm. Where the Marquise de Cat herself lives. We're gonna have a lot more fun with names because I, I seriously have like twenty to thirty more <laughs> cat names as backups, <laughs> just in case we went there. Yeah. We didn't, but Garrick and L- Lily, have you played the RPG? Are you guys RPGers? Garrick's too practical for an RPG, I would have guessed. <laughs> so I, I like I used to DM Garrick movie. Just just show it. Do you? I, I can't move my camera like that. Yes, you can. Garrick doesn't like RPGs, but he owns over a hundred of them. (laughs) It's a little more nuanced than that. I don't dislike RPGs. I didn't say you dislike them. I said you don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) I yeah. I I have a lot of I have a lot of RPGs. I think they're fascinating from a game design perspective. And at one point in my life, I had aspirations of playing them, and then I stopped. Uh, and I buy fewer, but I still occasionally buy some. I totally get that fascination. Garrick, what is your least disliked RPG? <laughs> that is a good way to frame a question to Garrick samples. Least disliked. That is a good way. Um, I've got I've got some cool like indie niche stuff in the collection like we recently tracked down a copy of my life with master which is a cool little indie rpg from like 2006 that uses the the narrative of frankenstein and igor to tell a metaphor for like domestic abuse uh, <laughs> uh and it, it, it's you're all giving me funny looks um it's because this is a, the one you dislike the least <laughs> well, no, no. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating idea yes, because, like, it's it's, it's 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 using the medium of games to ex- to to explore what is like a very a very real and heavy topic, yeah. but in a in a very interesting way. And this it was just it was meant to be one example of many. I'm yeah. trying to look at my shelf. <laughs> one that I really like that we've been the one we probably most recently attempted to play was City of Mist. That's yes. one of my, wow. my absolute favorites right now. City of Mist is very cool. It's it. I don't. This doesn't need to be the Garrick talks about RPGs podcast, but it's a it's a very <laughs> very cool uh, system that uh, builds on Powered by the Apocalypse in its own way and does cool things with mythos and mythology and and uh, human perception of them. So you like uh, what you like about the RPGs is the systems that they build for creating narrative. I like the systems because I think from a game design perspective, it's fascinating to see how they attempt to interface with the players to curate uh, the experience that's desired out of the designer. Every medium of art engages with its its viewers, its, its uh, audience in different ways. And part of that is the amount of Inter- interaction, the amount of input the the audience themselves have on the the piece of art, uh, and RPGs are 
particularly interesting because they're effectively an attempted piece of art through a a manual. Yeah. They they are using <laughs> game design to try and provoke the right experience out of the players. So so on some level they're they're an act of like psychological manipulation, not in a bad way, just like in in a the way they prime you to think in certain ways using the mechanisms and it's 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 just fascinating to think about. Absolutely. Like thinking about like they give you a rule set, but then that goes through like a human's imagination right. to play pretend with their friends to give them an experience that like was all intended by a manual. That right. is like, yeah. It's fascinating. All the yeah. manuals which agree that like at the end of the day, th they can be wrong and you can be right too within that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do like that part of the game design is trying to make you think less about the system when you're in the moment. Mm -hmm. and kind of submerge that beneath the, like, narrative and interaction, storytelling, like, all the fun details that make it an engaging experience. And I feel like there is so much design that goes into being as, like, streamlined as possible, too, which I can I can totally see the source of design fascination with RPGs. <laughs> Thank you. That's validating. <laughs> <laughs> he says, gazing at the bookcase. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of them, guys. <laughs> you got the root RPG? No. <laughs> wow. Wow. Money was tight during the Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And For I sure. wasn't paying attention, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had every intention of buying it at some point. We just haven't yet. Yeah. Well, you guys have been paying attention to a lot of Root because we are recording this right after the weekend of the semifinals in the Root Winter Tournament. And you guys plowed through five five-player games. Is that right? Uh, two of them were five-player. Three of them were four-player, if it. I recall correctly. And the and big headline out of this is that Woodland War Machine's own Murder She Root, also known as Sam DeRost, has made it to the finals. Yeah. Yes, yes, I did. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, I feel like the headline is how long those semifinal games were. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Personally. Oh, God, the yeah. four-player games, insanely long. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it wasn't even the five-player games. The, the <laughs> Saturday, the two four-player games were eight and a half hours of streaming. Oh, my yeah. God. Oh my games goodness. two and three were both... Uh, game three was exactly four hours. Game two went beyond the four-hour wow. mark, which yeah. previously I think had been considered like the distant upper limit of a possible game of Root. Right. Like, how much more could you explore in... <laughs> four hours but we found that there is indeed no ceiling you just have to talk a lot that's 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 the trick immediately people on discord were already starting to talk about like is there a way we could do speed route <laughs> the whole latter like third of the game was just people in chat chat workshopping a rule set for speed route i eventually had to be like guys please focus on the game this is not the time or place to develop speed route i am trying not to provide my thoughts on it but i am doing it anyway but this is not the time or place to discuss it i love that practically like if you were doing this live in front of an audience half the audience just goes over to the side and starts talking quietly about how to improve the show. Yes, yes, that's exactly what was that's happening. So funny. Uh, what was largely, was it largely table talk or was it also the reason that the games were so long? Was it also that people were really trying to plan out their turns to make sure they didn't mess up because every turn was precious towards the end? It, it was a lot of, a lot of that. Mm -hmm. it, it was fascinating. I was not actually anticipating a big difference in feel coming into this round. 
Uh, but right from the outset, every single game was just that much more serious and tense. Like you could tell that everybody was much more focused and taking it more seriously than they had been in the previous rounds. And I thought they already were taking it seriously. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the caution and kind of insistence on being accurate, Mm -hmm. you could tell that every player was really bringing a ton of focus and preparation to their games. Again, I, I feel like the length of time wasn't so much analysis paralysis as just taking your time to (laughs) find the best path forward Mm -hmm. and like every player doing that and i do feel like the games we saw in the semifinal weekend were incredibly interesting and i mean it seemed to a large extent maybe with only a couple exceptions that like any player could have had (laughs) their game at some point or another no no i agree yeah, the, the level of root has consistently risen over the course of the tournament. And I, do you guys feel like that's a part of the way you designed the tournament? I mean, certainly that was that was the hope. I mean, the, the goal was that by giving, you know, everyone two lives, in effect, that we could allow to, to perhaps a greater extent than single elimination, the, the cream to, to rise to the top because, I mean, Root is a random game on, on some level. There will always be times where, you know, a skilled player will just get unlucky uh, and in a single elimination tournament that would get them eliminated. So the idea was if we give everyone some lives, maybe we'll see a little bit more of the, you know, luck to skill ratio balance toward skill. And, and it seems like that paid off in my opinion because we had some really incredible players uh, in round three and into the semifinals. I was going to say, like, I think one of the reasons also everybody was taking their time was because I think people started recognizing each other's names, whereas in the first rounds, everybody's like, bunch of randos, and then one of those randos destroys you, and then you're like, I remember that guy (laughs) from the first round, and so now we're in the semifinals, and everybody knows that everybody else knows what's going on with each of these factions for the most part, so caution is uh there's lots of caution yeah you can never um take for granted that anyone else is gonna make a mistake at this level (laughs) i mean it's a a literal pantheon of root greats in the semis i was looking at names you're like greg gula squidmark germ curry bugless like all these people who are the heaviest of heavy hitters in in root world are battling it out in the root semis and it was exciting to watch Mm mm-hmm I was just say it's it's really cool seeing the the different uh, like demographics of root players. Like you had your old players like Winesy and Germ and Fogus and stuff, but you had new rising stars like like uh, Rehab Escape and and Walrus Law, and you had your digital demographic like Regula, and they were all coming together and just playing root at like the top level. You know, you should start tracking these demographics, right, Lily? Where they're coming from, <laughs> country of origin. That would be. Uh... Interesting. <laughs> yeah, you got yeah, your old school players, they all wear like leather jackets. You got the new school players, they got bombers. Digital players have windbreakers. I don't know. I don't know. I'm losing it. Going so going into the semifinals, um like what were the metas that were de- like kind of developing in the tournament for the first three rounds that you guys were seeing that might have been different from prior to the tournament? What do you mean by metas? I don't know. Just some changes in the overall gameplay and like like perceptions of how certain factions perform at the board. Well, people were taking Corvids more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. they, they've been doing a lot better in rounds one and two. Uh, so it wasn't just like, a, oh, there's a Corvids player. It's like, oh, no, like we have to pay attention to the Corvids too. Yeah. 
for sure. Is that just an impact of advanced setup being the standard for how we start a game of Root now? I believe that does a lot for it. Giving them that starting flip really helps kind of impact their game. Um, Or at least that's what Garrett keeps telling me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, because it's a point from the flip. It's whatever the effect of the plot is, if it has a plot, uh, an effect, which it often does, because typically Corvids are left to later in the draft order. So they get to go earlier. They get to flip and extort and get some cards. Uh, It gets them some crafting on turn one, which is you know, something they didn't have prior to ad set. And that's a huge boost for either their uh, crafted effects or just for points, getting an item. Uh, again, they get an extra warrior, which is low-key huge when warrior density is such an important part of their game. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, it's a big buff for them. And then also using Lost City on the mountain was really impactful for a lot of factions. I mean, Corvid, you get, you can do five recruits in one turn. Um, depending on other factions, I'm blanking right now, but there's a lot of good impacts for that one. <laughs> I mean, just wild crafting in general. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Huge. This is probably the fourth episode that I've said this on, but I think Lost City deserves an entire episode dedicated to all the funny interactions that are possible with each <laughs> faction and card. There's like a thousand different amazing plays that you can do with that. And Lost City is a great example, but because this tournament introduced so many new elements, we got to watch the meta kind of evolve in real time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially through rounds one and two. And kind of, I mean, still in a way. But how much do you think the third and fourth rounds were, meta-wise, just a reaction to one and two? I feel like round one was a lot of people encountering content for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Marauder and, to, to some people, Exiles and Partisans and Underworld content for the first time. So there was a lot of dipping your toes in the water to see how it feels. I feel like there was a significant shift going from round one to round two, where now everybody sort of had seen something at least once. Uh, I feel like people did a little more practicing between round one and two than they did prior to round one. So people had upped their their game and their knowledge a little bit on that stuff. Uh, and then that just really laid the groundwork for going into round three in the semifinals, where I feel like we're seeing uh, not necessarily the the final, you know, matured Marauder meta, but we it feels like we are very near to approaching, you know, the the highest level root players having a lot of familiarity with the new content, being able to incorporate it into their holistic knowledge base and just you know play with it all on on an even level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like I really I'm really happy with so many of the like kind of like changes uh that you made to this tournament like insisting on Lost City, Despot Infamy. I know that some of these things were like Cole asked you to do these things specifically. It was really just Despot Infamy. Oh, was the, that just the one? Yeah. Yeah, Lost City was all all me because mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've been playing Mountain Map since Underworld and I like a lot about Mountain Map, but I think it accelerates the game too much having the tower landmark in addition to the closed paths. That's just too many points in the in the economy. Mm-hmm. So when when I saw Lost City as something that could have the same King of the Hill dynamic, but without accelerating the the points economy, I was like, heck yeah, I want to put that in. And then at the same time it was, you know, advertising for Marauder and I was like, I'm sure they'll let me do that. That's mm-hmm. fun, right? <laughs> Uh, how have you felt like that the changes that you made? I'm especially interested to hear in Despot Infamy um, and just kind of the modified draft. And I'm interested to get into because I know that 
the draft is slightly different than yes. the actual ad set draft. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those couple changes. Yeah, so it's going to sound very vain, but I uh, prefer playing the rule, tournament rule set to the official ad set. Can you believe that? That's why, that's why I made yes. it that way. <laughs> Uh, I've, I really, I really enjoyed the impact Despot Infamy has had on on the dynamic of of Root with the Vagabond. Uh, it the Vagabond is always tough to talk about because we tend to bring up the horror stories, the the games where Harrier gets a sword in the first ruin and then just goes ham and you can't do anything about it, even if you send it to the forest every turn, or the games where uh, you know not so often with Exiles and Partisans deck, but where Tinker you know becomes a crafting monster and you know uses the Infinity Gauntlet to snap out half of all life. Uh, but uh, there's there's the it's weird to talk about because that's not the universal Vagabond experience. And Despot Infamy is nice because it's addressing mostly the, the really oppressive Infamy scoring in the endgame, the way it can burst and ignore entanglement. And instead, it forces the Vagabond to rely on its full toolkit, uh, questing, aiding, which really changes how the Vagabond feels without actually changing how... To, to a large extent how competitive it is because Lily's done the the analysis on this and the scoring curve is is pretty similar to to normal infamy right Lily really yeah so between I, I I took the scoring models for the plus one pool draft and compared it and did a t test against the ad set draft and they are not statistically like different at all mm. is there a there's no difference I guess in which vagabond is being played? I did not break it down okay. that far. Uh, we probably don't have enough data to actually yeah, create right. good models yeah. for that. Um, but just on an overarching reach of every Vagabond game played between plus one pool versus ad set so far, or up to the third round. Interesting. Yeah, and yeah. there was we have a good data set for this because the Vagabond was chosen basically the most of any faction that was popping up. It also appeared quite frequently, right? Because there's oh, two Vagabonds yeah. in the... Uh, in the blind kind of faction pools that get drawn at the beginning of the draft. So even with Despot Infamy changing the way that people approach the, you know, the play style of a Vagabond, people are still choosing it all the time. Yeah. Do you feel like Despot Infamy was specifically curtailing or enhancing particular classes of Vagabond? Because I, you know, I can't help but think that like, you know, the Ranger or the Ronin that are a little more like combat oriented are going to struggle slightly more than they or you know otherwise might. I mean certainly it's targeting the the really aggressive vagabonds more uh but I think I think the tournament has shown that infamy is not bad with despot infamy. Like we we've seen games where aggressive vagabonds still went aggressive and they were still very very powerful. Uh it's just that they didn't need to be sent to the forest every other round. They didn't burst out of control quite as as quickly as they did. They they just felt like they were better tuned to the pace and to the uh, not aggression level, but to the amount of focus comparative to other factions uh, yeah. that that other factions. The racing also felt yeah. a little more even in the end for a yeah. lot of them too, right? Yeah. I remember that being a thing because they. You can just tack on so many points if they just go hostile and go crazy. 
the thing I've the thing I've said throughout the tournament is that the nice thing about Despot Infamy is it turns Vagabond from a very easy faction to a fairly challenging faction. Just the need to actually care about how you're optimizing your actions, how you're pacing them across your entire game, really, really elevates the puzzle that is the Vagabond. Yeah. Yeah, I think we saw that in Grey Gula's third mm -hmm. round game, I think it was. Like, his final turn was unreal. The, unreal. The way he had to puzzle it out, and I feel like with normal infamy, it's more of like a slip, attack, 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 yep. move, attack, 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 or whatever, and it's just not as interesting as the moves we saw where it's like, slip over here, aid for a boot so I can go over here and complete this quest, and yeah, it was impressive. Yeah, it's it's great. Because, I mean, some people certainly miss the the power fantasy of original infamy, but I think <laughs> uh, on a somewhat more objective level, it's it's creating a more interesting faction both to interact with and as you know. And I remember before we did Despot Infamy, and one of like kind of for me, I feel like one of the big drivers for you, Garrick, for kind of wanting to change something was we played a game with Garrick as the Vagabond and he got half of the turns that the rest of us did, but still kept up in points. We sent him to the force every other round right. and just every other Garrick. round he couldn't play. <laughs> I mean, even more than keep, I've had several games with Harrier getting that sword turn one and in the wrong faction mix, we sent it to the forest every turn and she still not only kept up with us, but outpaced us doing wow. everything we could to stop. And that, so that, that was, that was the only thing that I felt was actually too busted in route. Yeah. And and so that was the reason that, you know, I was pushing and testing Despot Infamy before, you know, the tournament all the way back to the Marauder playtesting and last year's winter tournament and why I was glad that Cole pushed for it because that gave it the legitimacy that I would have been hesitant to do without his his blessing. Yeah, for sure. And I, like you said, it's an, uh, a more interesting faction to interact with because it's lame having someone take half the turns as the rest of the group, you know? Right, right. Yeah, Every it, time it used to happen, I would joke that they were going to jail, do not pass go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what it feels like. Like, that's not a fun game to play. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and Despot Infamy certainly makes it yeah. much more of a challenge. Uh, Kyle and I, in some like early test games, were playing with Despot Infamy to be like, oh, how how nerfed is it? And we we didn't hit the vagabond at all, and they still won. So uh, we're like, oh, okay. Well, there's, you know, it's not too nerfed, you know. Yeah, still very doable. Yeah. So you guys fixed one um, oppressive faction, but there was another faction that had a fairly oppressive impact on this tournament, and that was the Lord of the Hundreds. Uh, yes. In so many words, had a pretty outstanding record yep. through the first couple of rounds there. And uh, we mentioned before, a lot of players, it's the first time they're encountering Marauder expansion material, of which Lord of the Hundreds is a brand new faction. Mm -hmm. And seeing it in the mix is, you know, going to be a big, you know, learning curve for, for people. Do you think the outstanding win rate is just due to unfamiliarity? I think it's exactly where it should be because Lord of the Hundreds is the best <laughs> faction. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, we going into the tournament, Lily and I both anticipated that Lord of the Hundreds would do really well early in the tournament and Badgers would do really well later in the tournament. Uh, and, and things went a little funny in, in Badgers regard, but the, the basic idea was that Lord of the Hundreds is really easy to pilot effectively and a little less intuitive to police effectively. Totally. Uh, so it would do really well, you know, on the outset, but when people didn't know the faction very well, and as people became more familiar, they would learn the tools to to hurt it, and it would stop winning 
so often. And on the contrary, badgers have that very high upfront learning curve. Uh, and then as people learned to pilot them, you know, we thought they would start doing very well. But then the funny thing happened there where all the really sweaty players went off and, and learned how to play badgers. And then they came back and already knew how to stop badgers before badgers really got a chance to do amazing <laughs> in the tournament. Absolutely. <laughs> Garrick, you're a big fan of the... Uh the warlord or should i say you dislike the warlord the least of uh, <laughs> the um, what what are people overlooking in terms of policing them what's what's your like top advice for uh for giving lord of the hundreds a hard time it's i don't think it's any big secret it's just uh it's mostly a culture shock i think i think a lot of groups are not going to be used to playing root to the level of aggression that warlord demands and uh, Warlord demands it. So <laughs> the only way to deal with the Warlord is to be aggressive back. You need to kill the Warlord if he's ever vulnerable. More importantly, you need to go after the strongholds, uh, both killing them and just squatting on the Warlord's back line because every action that he has to spend wiping people out of his clearings to secure a press is an action he cannot use to send aggression outward at other players. Uh, and of course, you have to treat him a little bit like the Vagabond and deny items from him, yeah. at least when you're first learning. As you get more experience, you can figure out which items you can give to the Warlord. But, you know, better safe than sorry when you're when you're learning. Just don't give him anything. You you heard it here first, folks. Uh, to stop the Warlord, you get a punch. <laughs> <laughs> what is it you two think is the reason they're performing? I mean, you already said it was a culture shock, but in a nutshell, what within the faction makes them so powerful? They punch good. That's it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they they have a they have a means of passive scoring and they have a strong action economy and recruiting, which gives them both agency uh, to affect the game state and target other players and the ability to score while doing it. Yeah, as I say, that's the two prongs that make a really strong faction as root is some level of passive scoring and some level of of action economy to, to exert agency. What were you saying, and, Lily? And I'll just also with the exerting agency, it also is a kind of means of active scoring because you're controlling the map. Yeah. You're taking out the cardboard yeah. and any free yeah. points on the map as well. Uh, another way to say exactly that same thing is I feel like the Lord of the Hundreds is a faction that's designed to grab initiative, which is something that not all root factions can do. Mm -hmm. And uh, an interaction that I, I specifically want to bring up, Lily, because I saw this in your data and it's it kind of surprised me, or at least it was just like a like a big number around a bunch of small numbers. And so I was a little surprised. You have this great uh, tool on your website or um, you know, a slide of a series of slides that show each faction and the full mix of other factions that are in the game when that faction was chosen and how they fared, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I saw a stat that Lord of the Hundreds won in games that included the duchy eight out of 12 times, which is... Kind of interesting, right? Because they're both kind of red factions. And theoretically, at least, they would be able to, you know, fight each other in some way, right? The, the duchy is, it's possible to marshal a rather large army, right? And Lord of the Hundreds, you know, can spread out where the duchy likes to turtle a, a bit, I guess. I just wanted to get your guys' take on, you know, what about that interaction is tilting so heavily towards Lord of the Hundreds? Well, I think from what we're seeing is Lord of the Hundreds again is kind of doing the aggression outward and while the duchy wants those pieces out to sway lord of the hundreds was like "Ooh, easy clearing 
Right. And so the duchy's now spending their actions to go back out to get the pieces to sway while Lord of the Hundreds still has that initiative of I'm going to keep going and keep going and keep going and make you do that work all over again so they can't do anything else. I think it's sort of the the natural result of a faction that's so turtly coming up against the warlord because, you know, the moles are all about just sitting there doing their own thing. And warlord is all about uh, doing his own thing and then going out and punching you while he does it. So. <laughs> yeah, I feel like one of the metas that's developed maybe at, in the same time as the tournament, not just because of the tournament, is kind of like Moles is kind of has now one consistent strategy, yeah, which is to go small into one of a number of buildings options, and yeah. that's where they've always found success, right, Sam? Well, you're asking me. <laughs> I've done the same thing in three, three straight games. The, the, so. ones, the ones you want. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. true. And, and we'll get but to... Lots of luck involved in those wins. For I'll sure, say. for sure. But like, yeah. because <laughs> the moles are playing conservative up top right now and then are kind of incentivized to kind of stay conservative unless it's opportunistic for them, we're not seeing them go after the Lord of the Hundreds, right? Is that where that's coming from, we think? Yeah, I, w- I would say so. The, <laughs> the, the moles actually low-key have a really fragile start and people don't like punching the moles until they've already become a problem but if you if you do a little bit of heat against the moles in the early game they can really struggle to close out the game so that i think is is a big contributor of this is that warlord can go out and do that and unlike some other factions is incentivized on a points level to go out and do that so the moles are having that tougher game Mm -hmm. just right from the outset Mm -hmm. anytime the warlord's involved Garrick, don't tell them Sam's weakness. <laughs> I can't do moles again. I can't do moles again. We were talking just before you hopped on, Sam, and I was saying that, like, people are, in my game, we're like, don't let Kyle get the Woodland Alliance. Like, can't be allowed. And I'm just like, Sam just went three times in a row with the Duchy. Like, we can never let him touch that faction again, right? <laughs> yeah. Also, I mentioned this during that game because Garrick invited me to commentate on it. But, like, right before the game, I asked Sam, I was like, so what do you want to play? He's like, I want to win with lizards, you know? I definitely want to. I was like, oh, great, yeah. And we start the game. The draft occurs. Lizards is in it. And Sam picks first. He's like, well, (laughs) got to go with what I know. The moles. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to be a hero, but above that, I really wanted to win. <laughs> I think for the finals, I'd re- I'll would i do something like that. Sure, but, uh, sure. You heard it here. You already got that sweet swag. But going back to the Warlord Moles interaction, I think Lily uh, said something that really struck a chord with me, which is uh, obviously the Moles want a turtle and the Warlord wants to expand, so Warlord is going to benefit a lot from that. But... Uh, the warlord's incentivized to pick off those just straggling moles, which is going to tax the whole mole economy of like putting them back out there, maybe having to force them to put down a citadel to enforce those warriors. Because truthfully, mm-hmm. if they lose the warriors early on, you can't do that small into swole transition very easily because you're going to need to put the citadel down too early. So, Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's another faction that I... I felt like had a bit of a surprising record throughout the tournament. That's the Riverfolk Company. What happened yeah, yeah. in this tournament that suppressed their uh, win rate? What do, you, what do you guys think? I mean, it wasn't like that suppressed. I don't want to make it sound like they've had a catastrophic implosion, but we just haven't seen the same it, level of dominance from that faction. 
Right. It feels like a, a pretty catastrophic fall given they used to be, you know, right at the top. Like right. like people people thought they were one of the strongest factions in the game and now they're average, you know? So let's actually real quick, winning by winning factions, the what's the statistic? So normally I will go by win rate, which tells you the number of wins over the number of games they've played. Okay, got it. Um that's that's the number I really like going by. And so the Riverfolk Company is at sixteen percent. Okay. Um, that is just above lizards and keepers, and that is it. Those are the only two that are underneath mm. them in terms of percentage rate, win rate. And just barely a hair under the Corvids, right? No, uh, you just barely a hair under the yeah. Corvids. Corvids are at 17 okay. right now. Vagabond 2 looking real good. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> also, this is all available on makecraftgame.com. There's a whole winter tournament blog uh, that Lily's organized with all these stats. Uh, also, interestingly, Vagabond and Vagabond 2. So the second Vagabond has a high, like, as in literally the second one picked. Is that how we're differentiating them? Yeah. So the ah. Vagabond is generally the first Vagabond picked, and Vagabond 2 is the second Vagabond picked within a game. Uh, the reason reason that Vagabond 2 probably has a higher win rate is because they're picked so much less. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're oh, generally not in the game. Right, because yeah. it's percentage. Okay, got it. Yep. Yeah, so it's like normally it's like, it's like they won one out of five. I know in one, sure. one round they had a 100% win rate because they were in one game and they won it and then that was it. <laughs> a quick clarification on which one makes Vagabond 1, Vagabond 2 because you draft in reverse turn order. So is, it, is Vagabond 1 the first one that's chosen that goes second? Yep. It's whichever yep. Vagabond's uh, youngest. <laughs> uh, when it first happened, I didn't know what to do, and I asked chat, and they said that made sense, so that's what I did. Yeah, okay. that makes sense. <laughs> Ad set's slightly different than your yes. draft. What's the what's the difference? Uh, so there are two main differences. One, we've incorporated map selection into the draft itself form formally. I uh, think that's great, Garrick, and I'm a little mad at leader games for not factoring in map and deck selection into advanced setup. I know, I, I think, know. I think I know why they didn't, though. Why, why is that? Which is because they can't assume that everybody has everything. Oh. Yeah. That's hard to argue with. That's perfect. That's a really good answer. It's hard to argue with, but I will because it's wrong. You can still choose a map because those are double-sided. Right. That's exactly. true. You can still choose the map. At minimum, you will have two maps, and mm -hmm. both of them, both of them are interesting choices. Hey, maybe you could even say you have three choices, like autumn. You could do autumn with randomized clearings and winter, so you have three maps out of the base game box. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's a <laughs> it's a great skill intensive pick. It changes the shape of the draft. I, I fought hard for it in playtesting. If that's not clear, yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. I see why. I think we can go both ways. What's yeah, the other? No. What's the other difference? The other difference is, uh, this is getting into the nitty gritty a bit, but uh, the way the flop works in the official ad set is that if the last faction that is revealed as part of the flop is a white or an insurgent faction, then you will lock it and it cannot be chosen by a player until uh, at least one red faction has been chosen. So what's different about the tournament draft is you will only lock that faction if there's only a single red faction in the flop. Because the logic of doing the lock is to prevent situations where the four players in a five faction flop pick the four insurgent factions. Right. Uh, and that's just that's just a bad game. Yeah. Don't play it. Uh, so, <laughs> so the lock is meant to prevent that. However, it has the byproduct of limiting agency 
during the draft in flops that have two or more mm -hmm. militant factions. So for the tournament, I was like, it's a tournament. Players can handle a slightly more complicated yeah. draft. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and give them the greater freedom of choice. Uh, and I think that was, I mean, again, I said it at the start, it's vain, but I think it's better. <laughs> yeah, I, su I support that choice. It's okay to reinforce your opinions with like, you know, your opinion. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, my opinions are facts, Jake. Yeah, I know. <laughs> convenient thing about always being right. It's nice. <laughs> All right, I got one last stat-based question here that actually mm -hmm. kind of fits nicely into this. So during the, dr the ad set draft for the tournament, each player uh, in their kind of randomly assigned seat order um, has, you know, different choices of the map and the deck and, uh, you know, who picks faction first and that sort of thing. And I, I thought it was so fascinating that as the you know games are rolling in and we're getting all this data about the winners, um, the final pie chart about which seat won the most games turned out to be almost a dead even split. Yeah. That is yep. shocking to me. I mean, you would imagine that whoever went first would have a massive advantage in the game of Root. So, I mean, how, how do you guys explain that? They they did a good job. I don't know. <laughs> it's a good design for a draft. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because there were complaints at the start of the tournament that the draft did not do enough to balance uh, seating position, and people were complaining that it was too painful going, you know, fourth in turn order or third in turn order. But it's obviously we don't have nearly enough data for it to be truly statistically significant, as Lily will happily tell you. Wait, really yes. quick. Sorry to interrupt. Did we mention what the statistic is? Did you say that or did I miss it? Um, yeah, um, let's, let's say it. At least the way the one that I have on the website. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seat one won twenty six percent of the time. Seat two won twenty four percent. Oh, that it's seat even. Seat three won twenty seven percent, and seat four won twenty two percent. Oh, I misunderstood. And seat five, okay. Sam DeRose, you are the one percent that won from seat five. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I knew I won from seat five. I wonder how many other people did. Yeah. Uh, I I don't have round four stats up yet. Those oh, okay. will be up tomorrow. Um, but yeah, it's actually got even more even from the ones you just said. Whoa. Wow. Really? So it, yeah, seat one and three are 25% and seats two and four are 23%. Wow. Wow. And then seat way, five is 4%. Way to blow that draft theory out of the water then. That's great. Yeah. Okay. I have a potential explanation for this. Um, I was talking to one of my, um, students the other day and he, he had to play the black pieces twice in a row and our sort of like you know, inter intra fourth grade tournament that I've been, I've got going on. They get very intense about it. It's great. But he had the black pieces <laughs> twice in a row and he was like, man, this is so unfair. Like I, I got black twice now in chess, like white has a proven advantage for sure. Cause you get the initiative. Uh, but it's pretty close to even like, it's not that. Dramatic, it's not statistically really. significant. So the way that I explain this to the kids is I say like, okay, so sure. White has the first move. So they get, to decide like the initiative like what happens but black has perfect information so they get to decide what to do based on the information like white doesn't have anything to go on they just are making a choice and so that's what i tell them that's like the the compensation there mm. is you get perfect information to mm -hmm. make the most optimal move and i wonder if that kind of helps to balance out the seat distribution somewhat i think i think it absolutely does i mean i've mm. always observed that in the the less interactive games the the more like points racing games it's it's often the earlier seats that win 
But as the game gets more entangled, you start to see more of the domino policing as people later in turn order police people earlier in turn order, and then they get exhausted from getting policed, and it ends up coming back around to the people later in turn order. Which is actually kind of shown by our semifinals because two of the games were won by seat four, and the two five-player games were both won by seat five. Whoa. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That's really wild. Also, just, I mean, this is like an ad set thing of like not only choosing your factions in reverse order, but setting them up in reverse order. Mm -hmm. Like you're talking about perfect information, Kyle, like not only knowing like, oh, that person's playing the birds, but where the birds are starting. Yeah. Can really affect what what faction I'm going to choose. Yeah, exactly. What Mm -hmm. leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I will say the, the eerie play with starting with, commander i was just like what's what's happening this is interesting i'm curious to see where it goes (laughs) yeah that was a surprise this is in reference to game uh the fifth game of the semifinals, right sam's game and uh the player had put the eerie in the west corner or the west middle of the mountain map and put commander in their slot and didn't have anybody near them to potentially fight really at the outset of the game, which is what we were confounded by, right? Mm-hmm. But we, we, we didn't, I think Garrick and I kind of theorized like, well, there's potential to do something here if we can open up a path and go get over to the pass, which they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he tried to hit me turn one and I had to, or maybe it was turn two, I can't remember. And mm-hmm. I had to worry about, I was like, I had to use an ambush early on because yeah. he was just going to commander tax me my warriors early on. I <laughs> yeah. was really worried. Yeah. yeah. But that was an interesting game of like where everybody started really started the narrative of that whole game and actually became kind of an isolationist game in in some respects for a while. A lot of respects, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that whole game was kind of dictated by the setup and the early turns and how that uh, caused it to... Everyone, Everyone ended up playing greedy. And mm-hmm. and it resolved to be a very points racy, greedy game. And uh, guess who wins that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the answer is moles or Sam, but I like both answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's actually go a little bit of detail to this game. So Sam played the moles in seat five. Then uh, mm-hmm. Hansu, I believe, was the birds. Yep. yep. Uh, Thomas ninety nine was the vagabond, specifically the thief. Um, Fugless was the lizards and Katare is, was the crows. Yep. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, what, what, one thing we noted about this game first off is that it was really fast for all the other games. <laughs> I think we closed it out in just over two hours and yeah. notably the table talk was kind of, I wouldn't say lacking, but it was kind of vacant for a little while. There was a whole lot of, as Garrick said, a whole lot of people kind of focusing on their own thing and going for points and no one really else talking about it. Yeah. Sam, did you notice that in your game? Or yeah, were well, you too involved in your own stuff? I, 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 would, I would mute myself. I would make sure. Yeah. Like, if the talk is going in a way where people are talking about attacking people that aren't you, yeah. why get involved in talk? <laughs> yeah, yep. you know? Absolutely. Don't remind yeah. people you exist, you know? Yeah. Um, That's a great Sun Tzu thing, right? Never hinder your opponents from making a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, and uh, but I think, like, I would, you know, we'd suggest things. I think... Everyone wanted to get to the point where it's like, we're all going to be competitive before we start, you know, throwing yeah. punches. Um, and that's going to help certain factions over others for sure. Um, oh, yeah. But 
I, I listened back, I watched back the, the, the game, and I think you guys were very critical of the table not talking about, like, hitting the Vagabond, right, you know, in the yeah. middle of the game and yeah. stuff like that. And I would, you know, I would be like, okay, on my turn, I think I have to go hit the Lizards. And then the Crows player is talking about hitting the Lizards. And I'm like, okay, well, that's good. You know, <laughs> that being taken care of by someone who's not me. So I think, like, I think a lot of people had those plans, but no one wanted to say them out loud because mm-hmm. they don't want to be the person who gets stuck doing the responsibility for the table, maybe. I, I guess I do want to kind of push back a little bit. I don't want to paint your game, Sam, as one where you just sat back and turtled because that is very much not what happens. Because you had a big turn where you went out and tried to police two different factions, got ambushed twice, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and suffered two bonus hits, uh, I believe, from... Embedded, embedded agents, agents yeah. <laughs> yeah and it basically like wiped your mole special forces off the map yeah you yeah. had like nothing left after that all-in attack basically against two factions you right you were trying to do the big bop to push I, yourself ahead in the game and instead you checked yourself basically <laughs> yeah i got really greedy and i tried to get a bunch of cardboard <laughs> points at the same time as doing my shenanigans and and yeah, I when I did like lose a bunch of warriors and got ambushed twice, I did try to like announce that. Like I've been bopped. Move on from <laughs> me. Disregard me, you know. Um, it seemed like that worked. It though, did work too, I which thought, is kind yeah. of funny. Mm-hmm. Like no one came after your, you know, smoldering ruins after that. They just sort of like <laughs> left left you alone to recover. Yeah. I can't quite recall. Jake, did we buy that or were we still critical that the table should bop most? We were so pained from the Dumble ambush. We were like, we just saw a, a crime happen. <laughs> Especially because I think one of those ambushes, if I recall, only took out one mole because it's what it was going to do or something like that. I don't remember. But like, yeah, we <laughs> we felt so bad for Sam that we're, we probably did buy that. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it was fair. I don't know. The the thief was kind of doing everything right in the beginning. Oh, and I was just like yeah. shocked that no one got it didn't get mentioned until he was around point like 16 or something like that. I mean, the Vagabond was going to win that game given another turn. Yes. Yeah. You know, it yeah. literally no, just came down to the tempo of, of who got to take their winning turn first. Did anyone and, yeah. hit I rolled, them? I had to roll a three on my turn <laughs> to win. Yeah, like true. if I didn't roll a three, then I wasn't yeah. going to win. The Vagabond was going to win. It was that close. But. The, I, I remember thinking like, oh, the Vagabond's going into the forest. And this is this was like me misreading the game because then he didn't go into the forest yep. and he scored like four <laughs> or five points. And I was like, yep. oh, uh-oh, like, <laughs> that might be a problem. And then they got hit again and we're going to go into the forest. And I knew that they could do it on that next turn. Right. So. I think I think they played it exactly right there because uh-huh. they went in, they 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 were hurt badly but not so much that they had to go to the forest and they were only at like eighteen points so they t- did the the wise move of not going to the forest immediately and trying to make a burst that was beyond their means they they took you know a, a bad turn but where they got themselves to like twenty one twenty two points something that was much more attainable as a burst and then they went to the forest mm-hmm. and were you know unstoppable at that point their next turn was just going to be coming out of the forest and winning mm-hmm. but sam you had a little bit of a long road to go on your last turn i think it was like eight points or something like that mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you managed to pull it off it was pretty fantastic it yeah. was i had it i had it all mathed out and then hansu as the bird player came in and built in a clearing where <laughs> right. i was planning on just yeah. being able right. to build and i was then i was like oh now i'm one action behind which made finding that second piece of cardboard I needed that much more dangerous. I thought I'd have another battle or something I could do to 
to get that. So it was it, it was really scary. I masked it out. And I was like, okay, so there's a world where I have to roll a three. Let's see if I can find any other world. And it did not present <laughs> <Whoa>. itself. <laughs> and so then I just lined up and, and had to swing. Got lucky. And I, it's not the first time I've gotten very lucky in my end games in each of my games. Um, but you know what? Luck will win you a couple games of root. So I mean, you like- have to have the skill to get yeah. yourself into position for, for the sure. luck to to take you over the top. You know, for sure. Yeah. Also, Sam, as the attacker, you needed to get a three, right? Yeah. Well, it's gonna happen around forty three percent of the time. <laughs> <laughs> also, I couldn't. You know, I knew that there was like a, gonna be some jokes about bet on red, bet on black when all the zero zeros <laughs> kept getting rolled in that game. I think there were four zero zeros rolled, three of them by Katare as the crows, yeah. and that oh. was just heartbreaking. That's another oh, yeah. way I got really lucky. Is most of those zero zeros were against me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, the lizards and the crows went after each other in an aggressive way where they, uh, the lizards got a little tilted on that whole situation. And so you kind of had free reign to do what you wanted in the end, which was fantastic for you. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of stoked that fire a little bit during the game, too. <laughs> like, Fugless was like, he was, he was like, I'm going to go after the crows every turn. And then it turned to his turn. He's like, oh, I can't really do anything. And then I pointed out a move where he could <laughs> attack the crows. That's, whoa. Yeah. Save your diabolical. It was it was it was probably wrong to do, but So the, I was going to say it was going to be wrong to do, but when you said it that, that he actually did have an opportunity to go do something, that does benefit you in the game. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. I don't think it's ever good to throw a friend on tilt even within the magic circle cuz we want everybody to somewhat not be angry, yeah, yeah, but yeah. That being said, if it's in advantageous in the game, I'm a little more on board with that. Yeah. Oh boy. I wanted to bring up a similar situation to uh, the Vagabond in the game that you played, Sam, uh, which is another player setting themselves up for that winning turn in such a way that nobody else could catch them, uh, which was in game four on the winter map. Uh, Aquaman boss in a five-player game chose the Duchy and had just like an amazing big points turn uh, to get to 28 victory points going into the next round. And uh, Aquaman boss also in seat five, uh, oddly enough, had, you know, he got like a relic. He just did everything right in this one big turn. Still a little bit exposed, but I mean, scoring two points is kind of trivial at that stage of the game. Especially yeah. as the moles. I'm, yeah. And it, the key thing is he had banker by that point, yeah, right? Yeah, banker and mayor. Mm-hmm. So, and he had two cards in his hand. So right. it's like, that's, that's, that's one it. point. That's another point. Yep. It was over. Can't stop that. Right. Unless you had um, stand and deliver. <laughs> get the new deck out um, but yeah I thought actually that game was pretty fascinating overall we had Gregula as the Riverfolk company starting with like a big otter ball early in the game mm-hmm. that looked like that was going to be uh, the kind of police force right like really shaping the battlefield based on this like roaming bunch of otters but it got like wiped out at some point through a combination of, I think the keepers and the moles or something came through and just like totally crushed that otter ball. And then the game entered that really wonderful, like root kind of like wasteland phase where some of the armies have started to dissipate a bit and no one is at full strength and we're all just scrapping for points. <laughs> yep. And the reason I loved game four is because we got into that with a, in a five player game and it was just like really just 
everybody being so savage and delightful. And I loved it. <laughs> oh, I think it's actually kind of funny looking at like the graph of the scores. Like they're all very close and tight. And then you can see where the duchy just slowly pulls away. And then just like, okay, I'm gone. Whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah. In the progression of the game, you mean, as they get closer mm-hmm. to 30? Oh, that's fascinating. Just actually real mm-hmm. quick as a side tangent, did when how did the otters do in five player games comparatively? Do we know that? Just because no. more customers? We don't. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> well, we know no, anecdotally. I, know. I mean, do you remember? Yeah. Um, I feel like they kind of had a similar thing, and I think this kind of leads back to something Garrick and I were talking about prior, which is that because players have the ability to curate their hand while picking their faction, they don't need to buy cards from the otters first turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think they, uh, anecdot- I could be misremembering, but I think anecdotally they did a little better in the five-player games. Uh, just because, like, it's it's the same as always. They have more people statistically, who are willing to purchase. right, right. Just it's mm-hmm. gonna happen a little bit more. And from what I recall of Game Four, there was an abundance of funds, but just um, kind of remarkably bad RNG for the drawing of cards. Yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. which is a bit Drew something like three dominance cards, mm-hmm. yeah. And, yeah, soup kitchens, like a bunch of stuff that was not really usable, and uh, yeah, which is just unfortunate and just part of the game for sure. But um, yeah, it does seem like five player would be really nice for the river folk. Yep. Um, but it turns out that it's nicer for the moles, right? <laughs> <laughs> Two seat five mole wins in a row. Who? That, that's interesting. That? Yeah, both both five player games in the semifinals were won by moles. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah, really wild. Oh, I have something funny to ask about the duchy. So, Sam, this happened in your game, and I feel like you didn't even really interact with the Vagabond that much, but going back to the stats that Lily posted of, you know, each faction and how they did kind of in relation to the other factions, it turned out that the Duchy was a Vagabond Slayer, uh, just absolutely creaming them in most of the games that they were (laughs) present in together. Um, Pull up the exact stat here. Yeah, in games uh, where they played against the Vagabond, they won a... About half of them, nine out of twenty, <laughs> which is remarkable. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is there anything in particular about the duchy that counters the vagabond specifically, or is this just a quirk that we should chalk up to statistical chance? What do you think, Sam? The only like thing I can think of is that a vagabond can aid the moles, and the moles are going to benefit a lot from that extra card. But and we have seen that happen. A yeah. couple times over the tournament, like I, I remember groaning about it as it was happening. <laughs> I didn't get any, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, for sure. That's the only like, like thing on the faction boards that I could think of. Maybe for smacking the vagabond, they don't really lack battles in the end game. They've got a plenty of them. Yeah, yeah, like a late mm. check is maybe enough to push the vagabond into another round or something. Right. I yeah, mean, it's just kind of a fascinating interaction, like. I, uh, you know, I, I kept an eye out for like any big numbers that I came across and that one just like really jumped out at me. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it's sort of interesting. Maybe vagabonds in the future, be careful about aiding the moles. I don't know if this will result in a big number, but was there any weird discrepancies when vagabond and warlord were in the game? Cause they're fighting for runes, which unlike when two vagabonds are in the game, which doubles the amount of items under those runes, they have to, these two have to compete for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's a question for Garrick, and this is normally how I interact with Garrick. I'm just like, wait, I just thought of a rules thing. Um, if there are two Vagabonds in the game with a Warlord, and the yes. Warlord raises the Ruin, 
Do yes. they get both items? Nope. Nope. Okay. They get their choice of one of the two items, and it cannot be a ruin item they already have in their hoard. Got it. Oh. Mm. That's actually low-key one of the small changes from the print-and-play to the final edition. Uh, I actually didn't even know about that until we got like the final rulebook, and I was like, oh, that's news to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Just going through the numbers right now, Sam, um, so it looks like they had oppressive effects on each other yeah because the numbers are not very high for either that's that's what i was wondering lord of the hunters won in six games that they played that included the vagabond and the vagabond won uh it looks like just one game that included the lord of the hundreds Mm -hmm. so maybe on balance lord of the hundreds is slightly um outpacing vagabond in their matchup but i i mean i have to think that they are kind of sapping strength from each other absolutely they are and I have to think that depends a lot on which Vagabond it is, because I just mm-hmm. think back to Lord of the Boards game where the Ranger just came and wiped Warlord off the, the map, basically, right on, right on turn one or two. Uh, so that's going to have a huge... That's crazy. Savage. Huge difference in the dynamic, depending on that, what the Vagabond that is. That guy's a hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. He took out Hitler before the rise to power. Like, that's really good. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. Wrap it, wrap it around. Favorite mood. <laughs> Here, favorite mood. Brownie. <laughs> Introspective. Uh, <laughs> ennui. Definitely uh, ennui. Ah, oh, you took mine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is famously no. when a, a Lord of the Hundreds player forgets to change their mood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That is, that's what we took to calling it during the tournament. The ennui mood. <laughs> You're just like, nah. I'm good. <laughs> I don't feel anything. <laughs> well, I guess I'm kind of reiterating a question I already said. I don't know if we answered it, which is that anything that's really you felt has changed since the advent or since the start of the tournament, like meta wise or just attitude wise in the group, in the player base. I mean, we've we've witnessed a meta form in many ways because it's it, for a lot of people, it's the first time they're playing with the Marauder content. Right. Uh, and then we, we alluded to this before for some of them, even other like Underworld content. But it's it, we, we got Marauder content in advance for the sake of the tournament from the generosity of Leader Games. Uh, and as a result, we got to see the, the Marauder meta forming in, in real time. So it was very cool to see all the new faction dynamics, how to see... The, the relative strength of the factions changes with the, the new dynamics, the new meta. Everyone's starting in more entangled positions due to ad set uh, with better cards, all that stuff. You know, Eerie is more consistent than ever. Yeah. You know, Eerie, Eerie no turmoil strats really rose in prevalence due, with the, the plus one pool draft. And now they're just the dominant way to play with ad set. Uh, so that's huge. Wooden Alliance uh, is probably more consistent than ever due to curating their second turn effectively with their hands. Mm-hmm. People are getting really good at this game. Yeah. People are getting good at this game. <laughs> I think I think that's what I'm noticing also in the semifinals is just like there's a comfort level that we actually talked about this in the Under Pressure episode of like people know so much of this game on like the back of their hand that they don't mm-hmm. have to spend a lot of cognition just figuring out their faction or their opponent's faction. They just have to figure out what's going on right now. And they can really mm-hmm. be in the present very constantly. And you can hear yeah. it in, when they're talking uh, about the game. And I just, I'm very impressed by that. We're really, we're seeing the upper echelons of these players for sure. One shift that I've loved watching is the um, cats kind of 
coming into their own yeah. in this tournament really yeah. they've been getting they they've been definitely doing a lot better than we've seen them previously do with ad set and just kind of this new meta that's kind of forming and i i i'm super excited to yeah see rise of the underdogs with them and the crows as a matter of fact yeah yeah crows in particular cats it's cool because you can go back and see how people were playing them in like round one and there is a noticeable difference to how they're being played now in the later rounds Corvids are really cool because they're just actually winning games now. I mean, the <laughs> the, the, the joke yeah. prior to 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 mm-hmm. this it back, you know, for the past couple of years of the underworld meta was that Corvids are very fun. They're very good at getting to twenty four points, mm-hmm. twenty five points, and very bad at getting to thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, because of ad set, because of the more entangled and aggressive meta, meaning that there are more threats to deal with at any one moment, Corvids are actually winning games and not just like you know occasionally not not the least of anybody but actually more than other factions Mm -hmm. you know they're they're in the middle of the relative ranking Mm -hmm. it's really really cool to see and i mean we started off the tournament with a corvid win yeah Yeah. very first game it was i mean that first game changed everything (laughs) it was like oh welcome to a new era of root game one of the winter tournament because yeah it was between that and a lizard's dominance win something that we still haven't quite got is that dominance win in a competitive tournament i mean i'll do it in the final so close but but also the lizards i feel like have not been doing very well this tournament they have not I think that's been my big surprise of the tournament. I, I am definitely shocked by this because I figured that with your curating of hand, um, it'd be a lot easier to get, you know, that first turn scoring, which I've always thought is like super important because you can figure out, you can start in a double slot clearing. Hopefully you can curate your hand to be able to put down that garden and score. You start in a non-corner clearing. You can start where you want to. Right. Start where you want to. And you start with acolytes, yeah, which are that's a big great change. For, yeah. for defense. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're just, we've been seeing, I feel like we're still, lizards are still kind of figuring out their way in an aggressive meta. Mm-hmm. Um, because more I think about it, the lizards are the worst nightmare for the Lord of the Hundreds and the Keepers in their own way. Mm-hmm. And putting warriors in people's paths and in people, in, in annoying areas, like the last thing the warlord wants to see is lizards popping up in his territory. Right. right. And so the more you're kind of, passively aggressive with the lizards i think we'll see maybe better shifts towards their winning because they need to draw focus to being like okay either you can come after me and stop my scoring or you can stop me over here and continue your own scoring yeah and that's kind of what i think Mm -hmm. there's there's going to need to be a shift there but i think it's going to be interesting as it develops yeah I'm, i'm hoping it develops in a positive way i just i know i was completely blindsided coming into it because from play testing we all you know, playtesters all had the the conception that lizards were stronger than ever and were very competitive with with their benefits from ad set. Uh, you know, they were winning playtest games. They were they people were very very positive on them. And then we come into the tournament, and uh, I mean, certainly there's lots of factors that contribute to this, but yeah, they're they're not winning, and it's it's interesting to see whether that's uh, a player problem, a marauder meta problem. Uh, uh, tournament problem, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say. There's two new red factions, one of which has the best moving in battle action in economy in the game. Mm-hmm. And 
it it feels like that's going to be bad for lizards but i think lily's right i think like by you're gonna have to interact with acolytes a lot more than the classic lizard strategy of get these bird cards out of here and i just want my two clearings with my double gardens i think like yeah putting uh warriors in the way where people will actually get rid of them i think like when i was first playing the lizards you're like oh yeah i'm gonna put this lizard in your clearing and then you're gonna want to get it out of there but for most factions if you're not contesting for rule then they're like yeah. whatever you can be in this clearing yeah but since the lord of the hundreds needs to oppress that that mm-hmm. is a, a really important interaction for a lizards player to be on top of of course if the warlord ever gets mad at you they can just roll in and play some mob token <laughs> and not a lot you can do about that as lizards well that's why you have your safety lizards uh, they you can always only do have so to much. have your safety lizards. They can only do so much. Yeah. You got two lizards in every outcast and every suit around you. Are they just in bright orange robes? What is a safety lizard? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so no, they're, the way... they're like little fire marshals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's too many open flames near this garden. Okay. <laughs> the way that I like to play is I try to find a clearing that has uh, the clearing of two diff- the other two suits around yeah. it or adjacent uh-huh. to it and always have at least one lizard in either of those clearings so and have two acolytes. So if I ever need to crusade in there as like a last minute ditch effort, you got I got that option. Okay. Yeah, yep. so those are my safety lizards. <laughs> well, here's a question. Like, I, I, my, One of my armchair theories about this, too, is like I feel like the game has sped up a little bit in terms of when it ends in rounds. It, have we? Is that true? That is accurate, yes. Therefore, because the lizards are kind of a slow and steady, that kind of mm-hmm. would lend towards their fall a little bit, right, on this win statistics? A little bit, yeah. That's definitely happening. There's just too many people getting towards the end game too quickly now. And with increased entanglement, when cardboard can disappear more often, I assume that means more points. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Lily, what's the, what was the average number of rounds prior to ad set and post ad set? All right. So um, I have these actually breaking down by tournament, so I'm going to do that. Perfect. Uh, so for the winter tournament last year, we had an average of eight rounds. Uh, for the Space Cats Peace Turtles tournament, we had an average of 8.4 rounds. And for this one, we have an average of 7.7 7 mm. rounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's a variance of 0. Yes. 0.7. We're all like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, this is huge, you guys. The average is plummeting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been shifting towards faster games for sure. I mean, it was. Yeah, that's a lot. That's That's a solid 10%, right? I mean, it was down to 7.5 earlier in this tournament, right? It so, was, yeah. So it's, it's normalizing a bit as we get in the later rounds, but that, you know, the later rounds are not the entire tournament, and that right. would explain why Lizards were losing earlier. And also, as people just get better at this game, it's also going to probably yeah. get, you know, more expedient. Although I will say that uh, round two does take the honor of the longest round game <laughs> we had in any tournament. It originally was 11... We three 11 games last year uh but we had a 12 round game this year to really take the cake yeah uh yeah that was a double vagabond game and they were just they were having fun they were like we're gonna go (laughs) skipping through a park (laughs) some interesting decisions were made in that game i remember it it's like a desolate wasteland of a board (laughs) yeah it was and they were just like we're just gonna walk around we're not gonna actually score points we're just gonna walk around these guys are just giving speeches and fixing sheds. That's good. <laughs> Making this movement a better place. Man, it's got to be scary for the lizards, though, to think that like we might not even see the dawn of round eight in this game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Score on turn one. 
uh, lizards and gentlemen. <laughs> We've seen no domination victories, correct? No. Correct. Now, I will ask, I was thinking about dominance recently. I feel like there's been some honestly, like, awesome and very potentially possible domination plays this game, and it's it, or this tournament, and it's made me feel like, even though it's not the core strategy and never should be, as a fallback position, it seems viable to a lot of people. Is that fair? It's it's interesting because we've seen a few different approaches to dominance in the tournament. Uh, I think the two games that we could say were the closest to success were the, the round one game that we mentioned before, mm-hmm. where Lizards, uh, it, it literally just came down to turn order. Like people basically decided to let Corvids, who were right before Lizards, win mm-hmm. before Lizards did, who were right after Corvids. Uh, and then the second attempt uh, actually would have been successful if the dominance player had realized they could purchase mercenaries and use it to battle the right. moles and wipe both of them out in one fell swoop. Uh, that would have been a successful dominance if they just seen that that line of play. So, in a nutshell, it's kind of a matter of convenience when domination is there, it sounds like still. Yeah, no, I, I think there's been um, some really good opportunities for dominance. Um, honestly, the one that we saw that was successful, uh, that would have been successful if they'd seen that interaction um, was planned. They rushed to 10 and then immediately played yes. dominance. And I actually think that's probably one of the best ways. Is that true? I thought that was true. In Are the, you still conflating Aaron's game? I might game? be, I might be the, confusing well, games. I do remember in that I'm first game, he kind of like, th- he was he was playing cats, I believe, and he had like a yes. real opportunity to be in four mouse clearings just wait, based on where they were distributed and where he started. And so he had strong presence in all of them. In fact, I think we've even mm-hmm. talked about this one on the pod. But like as soon as he got to 10, he went for it. And we had mentioned that is the best time to do it because not everybody's ready to go deal with that potential play that early in the game. They don't have that engine up yet. Yeah. No. yeah that, was, that was Aaron's game, yeah. which is different yeah. okay. than the one I'm remembering yeah. and referring okay. to. Okay. Ooh, okay. I'm going to stop talking. No, it's I'm getting confused. confusing. But I, I know there was actually <laughs> one semifinals game where up in like that northern corridor on the winter map, there was three mouse clearings and the cats started in all three. And I was like, oh. honestly, if I was cats in that game in that position, I would have just built up real hard in those three clearings and gone dom. Because there's not many ways to get to them. Right. And who's gonna challenge if you as long as you rush it? I think that was uh, game one with Germ Curry as the cats. Yeah, in that northern I, strip there. Right. Okay. So we've seen a few different approaches to it in the tournament. We've seen it as the fallback, uh, like we were just talking about. We've seen where people set up in such a way that if they do start falling behind in points, they can pivot to a dominance play and attempt that. Uh, but we've also seen a couple notable games like Aaron's game where they didn't just set up for it as a fallback, but they gunned for it. They made it their primary strategy, uh, and that made it a completely different uh, game of root, yeah. almost even a completely different game. The, the the whole dynamic was completely different. It almost felt like a game of Oath or something. Right. With oh, the way yeah, that's that, a good comparison. The, the way everyone was just... Has to you know, deal domino. with it now or else right. they lose. You have yeah. to, and they were doing like they were they were kicking the can. Yeah. They were. I, yeah, I love it what was... how it changed those games. Is that that threat changed the whole dynamic instantly because it's right. someone's virtually at thirty or whatever that means. You know what I'm saying? They're not literally. Mm-hmm. But it was very close to succeeding, right. and it was a very different approach from something like playing a you know a normal cats game and having dominance as a fallback. So I mean I think there is probably room 
to to do it to approach dominance differently if you can properly read the draft like aaron did there mm -hmm. seeing it was a very you know low warrior low presence game uh and rushing for it or like where the other people did where they play a more traditional points game but then can think ahead and try to pivot at exactly the right moment to take advantage of something like a turmoil if eerie or the other primary military threat in the game mm -hmm. Uh, and and make it a really valid choice in that way. Yeah. Well, I like that it's more possible. I just want it. I don't need to have dominance. I'm not like a dominance fanboy or anything like that. I just I like that it's there. Well, you're and not, you're you are. Little, you're not into a little bit dominance. Literally, <laughs> Jake, your favorite card is rabbit dominance. No, the best card is rabbit dominance. It's not okay, my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, false well, orders is the <laughs> propaganda bureau. But yeah, and I feel like every time you're like. But there's got to be a way, right? <laughs> Every time we talk about this. It's just, well, uh, here's why. is because back to what Garrick said, is like it changed the dynamic of the game. And I always love something that does that. And especially in a game where it's things are starting to get solved. I, I think momentums in this game are starting to be forecasted much more accurately by players now. That's yeah. a hard one to forecast, especially when it's undervalued or at least, you know. Not pursued. Often. I just love that dominance is just like stealing the pie off the windowsill and just running <laughs> as fast as you can. <laughs> Very true. Um, best faction of the tournament. What do you think? Uh, Lord of the Hundreds, because it's the best faction. Period. Okay, <laughs> got it. Uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Keepers and Iron. Actually. Okay. Uh, all right. They're actually one of my part of my top two right now. Uh, so. Theirs is an evolution that's been interesting to watch, right, Lily? Because, like, as Garrick mentioned, like, in the beginning of the tournament, everybody's kind of fumbling with their existence, both playing as them and playing against them. And now... If they were courageous enough to pick them. Yeah, very true. Yes. But, like, now yes. everybody kind of, as their opponents, knows where to get in position to kind of stop the delving and stuff. Well, it's interesting we've reached the point where they're like okay yeah keepers are in the game keepers will not be allowed to play the game let's keep going <laughs> yeah. i mean every game now people talk about snare locking yeah. the badgers yep. just to yep. soft the eliminate thing. them <laughs> so that's that's becoming more of a thing which is very interesting so i'm kind of curious to see where that goes one other fun little stat here is if you look at who's in the draft, just like, you know, how often random things came up, it's really even, except for the duchy. The duchy's just like, I'm gonna be here all the time. <laughs> I don't know why they did that, but like everyone's like holding around like 40 and then the, du the duchy's at like 50. Wow. I mean, the, the Vagabond's at 55, but we know that's because he's got two cards in the draft. Right, right. Um, so that makes sense, but I don't know why the duchy's just like an overachiever. Mm. <laughs> Meanwhile, the, the otters are an underachiever at 30. They, they didn't want to be around. <laughs> Side question, does it make sense to, in future ad set drafts, remove one of the Vagabond cards until the Vagabond card is revealed the first time? Has this been proposed before? Absolutely, yeah. That's that's something that people commonly talk about doing oh, okay. when they play physically. Uh, the thing is, I don't actually know how the flop is comprised in TTS. It might just be pulling like uh, a random number off of a list of pools or something, in which case the extra Vagabond card is not a factor i don't actually know how slug and s Wait. coded it oh snap we're back to coding issues with randomness oh jake hates this <laughs> jake doesn't trust computers well but, but for, <laughs> that's that's the name of this episode uh, 
<laughs> but my question is from like a practical standpoint of doing yes. that do you you like that what's the... yeah and in real life i mean unless you are a glutton for double vagabond games like i am right. then you should probably remove okay. one vagabond card until you have dealt one of them as part of the flop and then shuffle it in with the rest of the cards and this is why one of the vagabond cards is hidden somewhere in the house i will not tell you where <laughs> <laughs> I'm spotting another copy of Root. But as soon as you find it, you have to play that Vagabond in the next game. <laughs> uh, well, this is all leading up to the Root Winter Tournament Finals, which, as of this recording, is happening this weekend, May 1st. Um, you'll also be able to watch the VOD on Garrick Samples Games' YouTube channel afterwards if you're listening to this in the future. Uh, we've got five fantastic players, right? It's going to be a five-player game. That's correct. Uh, at 12 p.m. Eastern on uh, twitch.tv slash Garrick Samples Games, we've got Aquaman Boss, Nico GB, Omnix PL, Rehabscape, and Murder She Root? <laughs> so exciting. I, I do want to just shout out Omnix for a second because Omnix got to the final game on the back of a Cats win yes. in the semis, which I just, gosh, I, I, if there's an underdog to root for. That's who I'm rooting for. What the hell? <laughs> what? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You were the best man at my wedding. <laughs> no, dude. Listen, I'm rooting for you 100%. But if you pick the duchy, I'm rooting for Omnix. <laughs> Where did you get that Omnix t-shirt, Kyle? <laughs> I'll also do another quick shout out for Omnix. And he has every game that he's won, he's won with a different faction, which is really cool. Ooh. Oh, interesting. Something I and definitely have not done. <laughs> Is interested in being a co-host on a podcast? <laughs> no, needless to say, the cream has definitely risen to the top uh, of this tournament, and I, for one, am going to be tuning in. I'm going to be making popcorn at 12 noon on a Sunday, because, <laughs> like, buckle up, guys. This is going to be one amazing game. Um, and, Garrick, uh, are you going to be having any, like, leader games people, like on to commentate or to visit why would you team me up so i could disappoint you <laughs> oh, just asking. it happened last time so i was just asking. no this time i i reached out to to cole to see if he would do a semifinals game but i uh asked him way too late and he was busy uh but i wanted to be greedy this year and take the final for myself and lily so Good. we are we are doing the the final game just the two of us that makes me so happy you guys definitely deserve it i hope you enjoy <laughs> getting to cast the final you guys have done so much work that really shapes uh the community's view of the game i mean these tournaments i feel like are where you know, the, the the rubber meets the road in terms of, like, how these factions kind of stack out against each other, which is what this game is all about, is when you smash these factions against each other in a woodland, who comes out on top? And I, yeah. I we're very grateful as people that do content about this <laughs> game that we have so much to talk about. And, I mean, you, we do content, like, once a week, a couple hours. You guys are streaming multiple games every week, and we're, Dude, we're just very grateful. what would we talk about with that? What would we talk about without you guys? Yeah, yeah for real. Uh, and Garrick and Lily are definitely the designers of the particle accelerator of the root world. Uh, <laughs> very nice. Uh, one thing I want to kind of quick shout out for Garrick, which I don't think he's realized, is the final game will be game 70 of the tournament. Wow. Wow. Ooh. Wow. 
I was wondering <laughs> if you guys had an, a number of players because I knew that were there were like fill-ins. Is there like yeah. a total number of participants that ever uh, played? I have not tallied up the total number of unique participants. That's 140. a great question. 140. Hey, there Whoa. you go. Wow, nice. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so many. Yeah, we started, we started with that. a dream of like, well, we started with an expectation of maybe like, you know, 64, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, with a dream of like 128. And we got 128 and managed to keep it, you know, between all the drops and subs, we managed to keep 128 sort of actors in, in the tournament. But the fact that it was 140 unique people is so awesome. It's so amazing that so many people uh, were courageous enough to, to come and play, you know, tournament route, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. So I, I'm just, I'm so yeah. chuffed that people came out and enjoyed it. Well, we're chuffed to have you guys on and talking about it. And thank you so much for doing all the organization that you guys have and putting this together. Thank you so much. Garrick Samples Games can be found at twitch.tv slash Garrick Samples Games or youtube.com's Garrick Samples Games. Uh, Lily's MakeCraftGame.com blog is a fantastic source for gaming, making, and crafting, <laughs> and statting, and graphs. Whatever I'm interested in. Yeah. <laughs> Any good uh, crafts or makes lately, Lily? Um. Well, I'm still baking through Bake Off, and I recently I recently did rough puff pastry for the first time, which was a fun nightmare. Very, so that was good. Very cool. You also have a podcast. Oh yeah, oh, that right. too. I did start a podcast. That's the thing that I did. Yeah, you're reading rule books, right? Yes, I am. Just cover to cover. Literally. Just cover to cover reading them. <laughs> I am obsessed with this project. What's been some of your favorite ones you've enjoyed? Yeah. Uh, I can tell you the one I didn't enjoy. <laughs> um, so at request of Luke, who often is on Garrick Samples Games, uh, he's been really into obsession and wanted me to read that rule book. And I was like, okay, yeah, fine. And then I get to the rule book, I open it up, and I'm like, oh, right, this rule book is an eight si size eight font and has 28 pages. Oh, no. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Is obsession that complicated? No. no. Dear God, no. It's not, right? No, it's not. Yeah. There's a lot of like historical stuff going on in it. Uh, honestly, I feel like I said the same sentences six times at some points so where I'm yeah. just repeating myself because it's very iterative on it's itself. It's a flowery rule book, right? Yeah. It's not a bad rule book, just very long. And extent <laughs> overly extensive too, and also explains like every piece with detail yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah and gotcha. that's without the 26 page glossary. <laughs> Which she did not read. No, I gave up at that point. I got to the end of the rule book and I was like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Just don't do any of Garrick's RPG books because none of that's uh, That would take forever. <laughs> We could read Red Markets, a game about the zombie apocalypse mirroring economic times of boom and bust. <laughs> That's a really cool game, by the way. Yeah. I'll stick to Fiasco if I'm gonna stick to anything. Nice. It's it's a but it's a commentary on on class warfare. Yes. And the development of the zombie train. Yes. Also that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Well, we all know what sound the zombie train makes when it's chugging along the fields.
Hey everybody, welcome to Root Pretty, the premier trivia show all about Root. Uh, we have some special guests here today. We have uh, Lily G. Hello. And Garrick yeah. Samples. Hello. Competing alongside the long-standing rivalry of Jake and Kyle. Um, here are the categories for the first round, all right? And each person will be able to get three questions in this round. There are four categories, each with three questions. So everyone's going to get three questions, all right? The categories are to the number of the law. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> root and roll before and after. Each answer there will be a, a band name that's also somehow incorporated into a root word. <laughs> the root is on fire. <laughs> and rhyming root. Each answer there will have two uh, uh, words in root that rhyme. Hey, friends, if you want to hear how we did in Sam's Trivia Tussle, head on over to patreon.com slash goodtimesociety and become a supporter at any level. You'll receive access to this episode and all episodes of Ruperty when you become a member. Thanks again to our current patrons for their support of Woodland War Machine and all of Good Time Society.